Hello, friends, and welcome to Beauty the Interviews, a podcast production of The Beautiful Project, a storytelling collective that invites women to challenge expectations, creating a world where we belong with substance and with strength. I'm Sarah Stevens, your host for this podcast and the founder of The Beautiful Project. Welcome to our interview with Jackie. And an important word of note before we start, Jackie's interview comes with a pretty significant trigger warning. Jackie is a survivor of sexual assault and chronic illness as a result of that sexual assault. She's also a survivor of domestic abuse. She has struggled some with depression and PTSD and a host of other realities that come along with Jackie's story. So it's critical to me that you know at the front side of this interview that this was probably one of the most intense interviews that I recorded in this entire season. Now, with that being said, I want you to know too, though, that Jackie handles her story with enormous grace and presence and hope and depth. And she has so much to say about healing person who has lived through what Jackie has lived through has choices about how they move forward through their life. I could not be more astounded at how Jackie has chosen to live. She is an exceptional gift to me, to this world, to all of us in this audience. And so I'm hopeful today that you find something for yourself in this interview with Jackie. So without further ado, let's drop in and hear her story. This is Jackie, and Jackie and I um, have met, well, we met one other time for a very lovely coffee. Um, She was sent to me by a mutual friend who knew about the Survivor Series, and so we hooked up for coffee, had an amazing time together. Now I feel like I've seen her at like 900 events or other places locally. Um, But it took me about three and a half minutes uh, over coffee to know that I wanted her to share her story. And actually, at the time, I didn't even know what her story was yet. But I wanted all of you uh, to get a window into this um, bright, open, kind human being. So thank you for saying yes. Oh, you're welcome. And being a part of this. You you bet. So um, I'm going to open like I always do, and I want to know what you think about what it means to be a survivor in general. When I think of the word survivor, Mm -hmm. I see it in two parts. So I would describe it as a journey, because Lord knows it's a journey, Mm -hmm. of being and becoming. And I think both of those parts are equally important. Mm -hmm. Um, As a culture, I think we tend to put this arbitrary timeline on survival Mm. where we want to celebrate what happens after you have survived. So, you know, you've gone through this traumatic, life-changing, horrible event. Now you're supposed to found the next nonprofit, cure cancer, change the world. (laughs) That's so wise that we do that. We do. And in, in reality, though, the part that we don't talk about enough is that the active state of survival is truly just your mind and your body doing everything they can to just be yep. and exist yep. and take that next breath or take that next step. And, you know, we don't talk about it because it's the hard part. It's the ugly part and yeah. the painful, yeah. dark, lonely part. Um, but it's such a huge piece of that. Yeah. 
So, but then on the flip side of that, I think there is this this beautiful side to surviving mm-hmm. something unexpected or painful where um, it's like an awakening and a chance to be mm-hmm. a greater version of yourself. Mm-hmm. I love I love the origin of words. I studied communication, so I was looking up. Etymology is one of my favorites. I know. I'm a real word geek, so. I'm a word nerd, (laughs) self-proclaimed. Hashtag word nerd. But um, (laughs) the Latin root of survivor is actually, is basically super life. Oh, wow. And I love that because I really do truly believe that surviving trauma creates this hyper-awareness of who you are and your existence in the world. And it's like a well, you know, when they the deeper those wounds are, I feel like your capacity to feel everything else is just greater and enhanced. So, wow. I didn't even plan that either. That just came out. See, I told you. But it's really, it, I think it's just such a complex journey is really the, it's something that we tend to simplify and it's it's just not. There's a lot of pieces to that and it's a unique, very unique journey. Folks, you know what? Like, I feel like our work here is done. She just said <laughs> it's like a well, and then it digs out those parts of you, which increases your capacity. And that, anyone who's survived anything, they're going to, I mean, they are sitting there going, Jesus, that's it. That's exactly it. Um, and sometimes that space feels like emptiness, you know? Oh, absolutely. And then sometimes it's filled with life-giving things inside mm-hmm. of it. That's fucking gorgeous. Thank you for that. Yeah, and then you get to find the power to fill that with what you want it to be filled with. I think that's that's the inspirational, empowering part of being a survivor. Yeah. Well, if anyone had any like doubts about whether or not they're going to hang out and listen to us today, I think you now know the answer. So <laughs> stick around. So um, <clears throat> that's a perfect segue into the second piece, which is. Um, just an invitation to you to share as much or as little about your own survival story as you'd like. And to contextualize that, um, before we hit record, Jackie and I had a conversation because Jackie is a a survivor of serial trauma in lots of different ways. And all of it is um, certainly connected by a central point, which is her. And so when she asked where I wanted her to focus, I said, I want you to tell the story of you. Um, I don't want you to tell the story of Jackie, the sexual assault survivor. I want you to tell the story of you, of which the traumas are a part. Um, so what she shared with me is that she's never been invited to do that or, or really had an opportunity to do that. So, um, I encouraged her that that's totally okay. And we're excited to uh, hold space for being the first time. So thank you for being willing and I'll give you the floor. I was thinking through where to start with this, like I said, before we got started. And um, I think it's important for me to start with the fact that I grew up abroad. So Mm -hmm. I grew up just outside of London. Mm -hmm. Um, I share that, A, because I think it automatically makes me sound a little bit cooler than I am. (laughs) But B, (laughs) more importantly, um, I grew up in an all-girls school. Mm -hmm. So um, my interactions with boys was very limited. Mm -hmm. I didn't know a lot about them. Um, The educational system in England is very different. Uh, We start school a lot earlier. So just by accident, basically, I was a few years ahead 
okay. um, when we moved back here. Mm-hmm. So my peer group naturally here just became people a lot older than me. Mm-hmm. And then I think another significant part of that life experience for me was that we would come back and visit family here often, but it was really easy to forget what happened Mm. um, and just turn back and live a normal life. I kind of lived this double life in Mm. America and England, and I had to start again a lot in my young years. So I think I just became conditioned to putting on a brave face and smiling through a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And, And that was, you know, not... Not a bad thing, but I think that was pretty significant as I look back through some of the traumas I've experienced throughout the later years in my mm-hmm. life. So I think for sure our survival, our coping mechanisms um, like that, which is put on a you know smiley face, that's the way you're able to navigate. Mm-hmm. But they can also be like anything. It can be a gift and it can be an absolute curse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I'm sorry. Can continue. No, no that's great. I, I have this memory. It's kind of where... I don't want to say it was like the downfall, but it, it's probably the most significant early memory I have of coming back to visit family here in the States. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of drug abuse and alcoholism on uh, one side of my family. And I had a, an uncle, basically, who um, had tried to touch me inappropriately as a, as a young girl. Mm-hmm. And I actually stopped him from hurting my little sister that it was kind of the the big sister protector that kicked in that Mm. was my response to you know realizing that was not okay and I had told my parents and it we addressed it there in the moment but then we fly back to England and all of a sudden that's forgotten Mm. and I actually forget that that happened to me quite a bit um it I think I just learned you know what if somebody has a sickness, if they're sad, if they're mad, if they're drunk, um, it can kind of be excused. Yeah, it's the, like permission. The poor choices, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and no one told me that. That was just something that in my own brain, I think, I I just learned. Mm-hmm. And so... Well, was it implied in the behavior in the way that it was dealt with? I feel like it was implied because it was like, not excused completely. You mm-hmm. said dealt with, but then... We just moved up, like... That's, yeah, even my word choice, dealt with. Well, what does that mean? Right. I don't know. I don't think we, anything was really dealt with. Right. Um, you know, there's a natural response of parents being upset and mad and... Um, right, but is that the dealing? Scolding and punishment, right. but no, it wasn't. You yeah. Know, there's that whole emotional piece to that that I don't think was ever addressed. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, flash forward to moving here. I moved here in seventh grade. Um, to Alito, small farm town. Uh, everybody pretty much is born and raised there, so you are sticking out like a sore thumb if if you're not one of those people. Mm-hmm. And um, like I said, I, I automatically gravitated to a much older crowd. My freshman year in high school, my best friends were seniors. Mm-hmm. I went to homecoming and prom with seniors. Mm-hmm. So I was 14 hanging out with 18-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And I, I was definitely at that maturity and intellectual mm-hmm. level. So it wasn't an uncomfortable mm-hmm. or awkward connection by any means. But um, but I do think that that kind of got me into trouble. 
I started hanging out with people who were kind of dabbling in drinking or drugs or sexual activity, things like that, that I should not have even been, mm-hmm. I mean, I should have been sitting in my first sex ed class basically at that age. Right. Because yeah. you were 14. Yeah. Yeah. Not, that comes like a junior, senior year, you know, right. when, when the brain's a little uh, developed a little differently right. by then too. Right. Yeah. So I, I ended up losing my virginity at a very early age. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember having conversations with some adults close to me and feeling really guilty about that and uncomfortable about that. And um, I had another run-in with my uncle, actually, at that time, that same uncle who um, continued to try to do the same things. And um, I think I just felt nobody really addressed the emotional side of it for me ever. I tried to open up a little bit about how uncomfortable I felt Mm -hmm. and I think I just learned quickly to just put on a smile and forget about it. Mm -hmm. So my in between my sophomore and junior year of high school I was friends with a couple people who um, I would say drank pretty regularly I I didn't but I I just hung out with that crowd and Mm -hmm. was at a party and I really don't remember a whole lot other than waking up in a cemetery Mm. um, with two big male bodies I can remember what the wind felt like I can remember the color of the car I can remember remember the names on the gravestones Mm but I can't remember faces. And um, I was very brutally sexually assaulted Mm. that night. And uh, they used a bat. I can remember the words and the brand of the bat that was used. Uh, I just have these really specific memories. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just incredible how your mind can protect you from the big pieces of that. To, in order to let you survive. <laughs> this is a really common... I don't know if you you shared with me that you've been listening to other episodes. Mm-hmm. This is common in almost every sexual mm-hmm. assault survivor. Almost every one of them describes an experience of not being able to recall the actual... Um, that you can recall all of the stuff around it, but not the actual event itself. Mm-hmm. Which I think is... Um, to your point, it is a remarkable function of our psyche that says you don't need to know that. And I think even you know, living in a small town mm-hmm. where everybody knows each other, I'm, these people dropped me off at home. So they weren't strangers. Wow. <laughs> and I, I remember my parents opening the front door and me throwing up probably from whatever had been put in my drink or whatever happened and and my dad just being furious that his daughter had been drinking Mm. and I remember the disappointment on his face and in his words and that to me was more shameful than Mm. what I had just been through because you know my family meant the world to me we we traveled across the world together we were all we had really so um I just had this unnatural craving to be perfect 
Mm. And I, I knew that what happened to me was, I felt like what had just happened to me made me not that way. Mm-hmm. And it took me a really long time to speak up about that. Um, I, my first conversation with an adult after that, the response was, you know, if you just had sex and regret it, you can say that. Oh, wow. And I truly believe that that sentence is determined the trajectory of the rest of my life up until this point. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I definitely don't blame that individual um, because I think just our society is really lacking in education and resources for friends and families of mm-hmm. people who survive things like this. And you just don't know what to say. What do you say? I have friends who have come to me with these stories too, and I don't know what to say. And I'm a sexual assault survivor. There's mm-hmm. just, there aren't words that fix it in that moment or take away the pain in that moment. So I, you know, I never look at that experience as um, a reason for why things mm-hmm. continued the way they did. But I, I definitely think that statement and response set the trajectory yeah there's no blame in that I think sometimes people think that that's the case so to your point when people come to you when people disclose these things we feel a tremendous amount of responsibility Mm -hmm. for what we're saying and doing which is true we should Mm -hmm. um but at the end of the day you have recognized that the person you shared that with was accessing the tools that they had which Mm -hmm. were limited in understanding and I also think that um, it's one of the things I've had to practice in, in holding space for survivors mm-hmm. um, because certainly when we sit in these rooms together, I can physically feel as people disclose things, right? And I want to move that discomfort. I want you to feel better. I don't want, you know, seriously. Like mm-hmm. I w- and so imagine like in the same circumstance, because that's true, it's an instinct in us. We go, I want to fix it. And the easiest and fastest way to fix it is to deny it. Because if it didn't exist, then there's no reason for the pain. Right. Right? Right. Um, it's really hard to hold space for something you can't fix. It's like right. one of the hardest fucking things in the world. Mm-hmm. So um, I, how long did it take you to come to that kind of a, that's a very gracious response to that initial response to you? Mm-hmm. Was that a, did that take time to find space for that, to, to understand it that way? Instead of looking at it like, why the fuck, why... Why the fuck? Yeah, I think if I'm being honest, I'm I'm 31 now. Mm-hmm. I was 16 at the time, and it's probably been within the last year or two. Sure. That I've truly been able to process the last 20 years of my life, mm-hmm. and so that's why I said at the beginning, it it really is a journey. It's not. Mm-hmm. You don't reach the day the where the other side. Yeah, you get to have a party because you did it. Yeah, you know it's there's a lot of active choices along the way and um, acknowledgement along the way that takes effort. So I, I think it definitely took me a long time. And we've spoken before about the grieving process through. Mm-hmm. It's very similar among different types of trauma, and I had to go through a very angry stage. Did that happen right after? Are you angry right after? Lots of people are. I think I was numb yeah. for a while. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was in everything in high school. So 
I think I just needed to get through mm-hmm. that part of my life. And um, well, I, your perfect child has to be in everything. Right, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and Super w- academic, probably. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And and walking through the halls, looking at looking in the eyes of people. Every day, I wondered, "Are you the person who knows mm. who that was? Was it you?" And it's it was just a very lonely couple of years. Mm. The end of high school. Um, I felt like everybody's eyes were on me, and everybody knew mm-hmm. everything about me. Like I had been naked and raped in front of that entire town. Mm. Um, it's kind of hard to describe. That sounds, you know horrible but it's true um no I think it sounds reasonable like that's how I can imagine that would feel and 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 my whole family didn't know Mm -hmm. Uh, you know I think a lot of people ask what could they have done why didn't they take you to the police why didn't they take you to the hospital there's so many questions and blame Mm -hmm. when you look at the family of survivors and that's that's not their fault they Mm -hmm. this was very much a process that I dealt with alone and in hindsight I wish I hadn't done it that way but um I started to develop some pretty serious health issues those last two years of high school Mm -hmm. um so I have I've dealt with some pretty significant chronic illness since around that time in my life and again it hasn't really been until the last year or two that I've recognized and that my doctors have recognized how much that trauma probably instigated some of those health issues for me. Mm. And I started developing really bad digestive problems. And when I started college, I had a surgery on my esophagus. That was the first thing we were going to try and see if we could fix that. And I kept going in for more tests. I wasn't getting better. And on one of those tests, we actually accidentally found that part of my colon had collapsed essentially Mm. um and they the doctors told me you know this doesn't happen to people your age Mm. have you experienced some sort of trauma Mm. and that was really the first time I remember having to open up Mm. and be really honest like yeah I have and here's what I went through and how old were you in that I was 20 1920. Okay. So I ended up having three surgeries while I was in college and fixed. They were able, Iowa City was wonderful. They're amazing. Um, They were able to repair it, but I woke up from that surgery with all new health issues and a neurological disease that we still haven't been able to solve or fix. Um, What does that look like? The neurological disease? It's been very unpredictable. Mm-hmm. I had that surgery in 2009. I ended up um, having to quit my first job out of college because I got so sick. So I was legally disabled. Mm. And the, per- the perfection side of me was like, what do you do when you can't work? Oh, let's just get a master's degree because, you know, that's normal. So I decided to I'm too sick to work. I'm I'm going to hammer myself academically. So, because my mind, my mind worked fine. Sure. And I kind of get that. I would, I would probably lean, I don't even know if that's achievement so much as Mm -hmm. like, let me stay alive here. Mm -hmm. Like, 
And if your brain was, your mind was working Mm -hmm. and craving, it makes sense to me. I'd probably go study too. I mean, to me, it was almost a self-care thing. Yeah. Truly. I mean, it was just a way to feel alive Mm -hmm. when such a large part of me wasn't operating and functioning the way that I needed it to, Mm -hmm. to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. And... I, I would have days where my arms and legs wouldn't work. And I, I can't tell you how many days of work I've spent on my bedroom floor with my laptop. Um, I would have pain, just excruciating pain on the right side of my head. And they tried giving me this medication that I ended up having a, a rare reaction to, and it almost killed me. I ended up in the hospital with organ failure. Um, Jesus. I've had, uh, I've developed a bladder condition from Mm. this, and I've now had two surgeries on uh, a medical, like an electro stimulator Mm -hmm. that they've placed on the base of my spinal cord. Mm. Um, I've named him Pedro. (laughs) The stimulator is. Yes, his name is Pedro, and I celebrate his birthday every year with cookies (laughs) and cupcakes. I made battery shaped cookies one year, and everybody thought they were positive pregnancy tests. (laughs) So that was not the best. Did you do cupcakes this year? I did. did I see cupcakes yeah. on Facebook? Yeah. I did, yeah. So, um, but but the, that whole uh, thing and why I just had to have uh, another surgery on that is mm. a, a whole other piece of my story too. But um, Tell me how Pedro changed your life then when you had Pedro placed. At the, before I was able to get... Pedro, it just sounds so funny. It's fine. We're just, it gonna, yeah. <laughs> We're just, We're just gonna call him. Pedro. I have my own hashtag, life my life with Pedro. This awesome. Is how I describe all the awkward moments in my life. Basically, okay. I blame them on Pedro now. But um, I I wasn't sleeping, so I would go days without sleeping, and then my body would crash, and mm-hmm. then I would just repeat that cycle. So, I mean, as you can imagine, it's. It's very difficult to work. It's mm-hmm. difficult to have a social life. It's difficult to do anything you enjoy. Mm-hmm. I feel like I just lost who I was in that time. Uh, yes, I, I got a master's degree. Yes, I, I accomplished some things. But in my mind, I felt like I was just doing the bare minimum. Yeah, um, I was barely getting up. And I was barely awake during the day. And then... I slept and that that was pretty much my life for many years Mm. and the hardest part for me has always been I look completely fine Mm. I think the type of chronic illness I have is really difficult for people to understand Mm -hmm. Uh, it was difficult for me to talk about for many years Uh, how do I say well I have this disease no one knows anything about I keep getting sent to Mayo Clinic they're doing studies on me but this other part of it was caused by other people, and that's a whole piece of my life I don't want to share with you because you're a stranger. So right. it was just, it was another reason for me to just be quiet mm. and not share it. And Too complicated to give people access to. Right. And I Ooh. didn't know how to answer the questions, and it, it just was easier to put that smile on and mm. power through and not let people know. Does the neurological disease have a name? We, they don't know. So what they have been able to diagnose me with is some 
like extra extra diagnoses basically but they don't know what causes the central mm. condition so they, they call that idiopathic something yeah they <laughs> I, they're not sure if it's an autoimmune uh-huh. condition or if it's um, like a hyper sensitivity issue but basically what they've told me is my brain and my spine just have miscommunication hmm. Maybe that's why I studied communication because my body just sucks at it. So I'm not sure why. Maybe that led me down that path. That might be very honest, <laughs> honestly. I've never thought about that before. Yeah. But So my brain will just tell my organs to behave a certain way when they don't need to. So I use my bladder as an example. They'll, they'll make it feel like that little kid on the road trip where your parents don't let you stop. Yeah. And you're in pain and you have to go so badly. Yeah. My brain can make my bladder feel that way when I have nothing in, in your there. Bladder. Wow. So it's just, it's painful. That's really, it's just been, I don't remember the last day that I didn't have pain. I don't remember what it feels like to feel well. Wow. Which is an odd thing to stop and reflect on. I'll bet it is. You've listened to Laura's interview, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys have a ton of um, cross sort of... When she shared the years uh, in chronic pain like that, she mm-hmm. talked about how she navigated that. Mm-hmm. And um, and she described it very similarly to what you're saying, which is it sounds odd to say it and realize that some... like And realize that you can't... A person across the table from you who's not been in pain it doesn't make sense like it doesn't make sense you can't get Mm -hmm. your brain around what it's like to say I don't remember the last time I felt well and you also do you present nobody would have any idea so what do you what what is what do you think the mental functioning is that's happening for you internally to like is it the power through or you just move the pain what what happens and or are you even aware of it I don't know what I did for a lot of years. Yeah. I think I just have this uncanny drive Yeah. to succeed. Mm-hmm. And it's almost been a sickness because mm-hmm. it's, it's almost added to it, mm-hmm. essentially, because I, I pushed through too hard. I, I was never good at setting boundaries for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done a lot of reflecting on that, especially with some later relationships I had I just was never good at that Mm -hmm. and I I was listening to Laura's story and actually remembering how much I used to envy people like her because I remember kneeling on the end of my the foot of my bed and praying that God would just give me cancer Mm. I just prayed for something that someone else would understand I felt really alone for I don't know how many years. Mm-hmm. And and I wasn't. I had my family is so close. My family has been my rock my whole life. I've always had very good friends, a core group of friends. You know, I was never alone, but but I don't and I think that's has offended some of my family and friends throughout the years too. Because Me you still felt alone. Mm-hmm. Because I still felt like I didn't have anybody there and I didn't have anybody truly understanding Mm -hmm. what I was saying and feeling and and going through. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think at some point, you know, I, for a while, I got really depressed. I actually spent time in a hospital for my depression. Mm -hmm. Um, It was terrifying. I, and I think I just hit a point where it's like, I, I'm either going to die. I'm either going to kill myself or I have to live. So Hmm. what are the options? And suicide didn't seem like the way to go for me at that time. So I just knew I had to do something Mm -hmm. to keep going. Mm -hmm. And I went through this transformative period where I really felt like, you know, I, I said at the beginning, we put this timeline on healing. Well, I really believed I had healed. Mm. I had survived. I was on the other side. Yeah. I was done. I really, I truly believed that I felt like I had accepted and acknowledged everything. And I had gone through, I had processed all the emotions, the necessary things you have to go through. And I was in a really good place in my life starting my career and then here I am getting into a relationship that turns into a domestic abuse situation. Mm. So do you want to tell me a little bit about that about that relationship how it started? Sure, it started great. Yeah, right. <laughs> um which I've learned now is pretty typical. Mm-hmm. Um and it's still I think it's a difficult thing for me to talk about still because what people don't understand about domestic violence and why people stay mm-hmm. is that there there's love there. There there are good times there. There there are positives to that relationship. Mm-hmm. But those just become what you hold on to mm-hmm. to get through that. And so, um, you know, I remember dyeing my hair he had been convincing me to dye my hair for a long time red for some reason Hmm. and um I I ended up dyeing my hair which anyone who knows me I I don't even trim my hair because I'm so scared about changing my hair I don't know why but I dyed my hair and it was the wrong shade Hmm. and I was locked in a room for hours I was spit on um he got so drunk, he flattened the stop sign down the street from our house. And it, I just remember waking up like that, that day, what, how did I come from that day one to here where Mm. I am now? And Mm. he had told me that he was going to call the police on me. And I tried to call a friend. He threatened to, hurt that friend if I did that and so that became just another reason for me to be quiet quiet yeah you've lost your voice a lot yeah Mm. and um what I have it it was very difficult for me to get out of that my family has since moved away and so I truly did not have a support system around me at that time Mm -hmm. um and I'm not really sure what snapped in me but I just couldn't do it anymore at one point and just left with basically nothing how long ago was that that was in 2016 Mm, not that long and so during that time as I was getting ready to leave um 
I was working about 45 minutes away from, from where I lived, and no one there had a clue that I was going through mm. everything I was going through. And it actually took me a year of sleep therapy. I couldn't sleep in a bedroom or a bed um, for about a year. I had to go get professional help to get back into a bed and face certain ways. And um, I started going to a support group at Family Resources. That plug for that place because that place has saved my life. Mm. I still go every week. Those women are my tribe. Mm. Um, but it, it took me over a year to even remember that I had a miscarriage during that relationship. And it happened while I was at work. And I, I think back on it and it actually makes me really emotional because I had it in the bathroom at work. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing, you know, this little person and just sitting there for a few moments, letting myself cry. And then flushing the toilet and going back to work. Mm. And I mean, it truly is incredible how much your mind can block out and save you from Mm -hmm. but it's terrifying at the same time and so I felt like after this whole experience I was just I was so sickened with myself Mm. like that I had gotten to a point where I was that numb with my own life that I literally had the biggest loss I could ever experience. Mm -hmm. And one of the most painful experiences of my life and that I allowed myself to acknowledge that for maybe two minutes. And then move on. And move forward. And I think one of the greatest lessons I've learned throughout all of these experiences really is that you really have to allow yourself to feel. Yeah. You don't get anywhere unless you do that. Mm-hmm. And it's totally okay to feel what you need to feel. Mm-hmm. And our support group leader always says you're feeling normal mm-hmm. responses to an abnormal situation. Mm-hmm. And I probably say that mantra to myself couple times a day (laughs) it's been like my I don't know just my life motto basically that you just have to feel and I think that's the hardest part of surviving is is actually feeling the process it is that's why we avoid it a lot Mm -hmm. when you left um you just left Something just snapped, and you started over? Yeah, basically. I, um, I ended up asking my parents for part of my wedding fund for a down payment on a house, mm. which that's an embarrassing conversation. Hey, Mom and Dad, definitely not getting married anytime soon, so <laughs> <laughs> how do you think about this? Um, but I worked really hard to get a new job, 
um, and just start fresh, which Mm -hmm. is kind of ironic because I think that's been my problem, Mm. (laughs) is this desire to just move and leave and start again my entire life. But I knew that I really needed that. Um, I couldn't walk into that same cubicle and that same stall and take the same drive that you know I'd fix my makeup in the car on the way to work I just I couldn't do Mm -hmm. that routine anymore Mm -hmm. it was just one giant trigger Mm -hmm. every day so um, I have since made a lot of life changes and I really just started going to the support group and sitting in a room of people who would nod their heads when I would try to speak and I felt like I wasn't even saying anything of relevance or making any sense. And these people just understood. They could see you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it truly was the first time that I've ever felt that way. I've had, like I said, I've had family and I've had friends who have been there for me through a lot of this. Mm-hmm. And that when I got in that room... Two year, about two years ago, I just that was the first time I really felt recognized and seen and accepted. So you've mentioned a couple of modalities, I guess, for heal for therapy and healing. Mm-hmm. And you want to talk a little bit about what that journey's been like for you, the healing parts of it, the parts that are like, because I know you said you thought you were healed mm-hmm. and there was an end to it. Do you see uh, that? Do you see that that was a it was healing? There was a season that was healing, mm-hmm. but there was more underneath it. Is that mm-hmm. how you understand it, or because that's how I understand? So for me, the healing seems to have been spiral almost in nature. Like it continues to get closer to the core, mm-hmm. but it comes in layers for me. It's like I take off a layer and then mm-hmm. I go, oh, there's another one, right? Yeah. So talk a little bit about that, about how you understand healing and maybe what ways you've found some for yourself I think my experience has been very similar Mm -hmm. it's been cyclical in nature where I feel like I'm doing a great job Mm -hmm. or I feel like I don't need it and then all of a sudden I feel lost again Mm -hmm. and it kind of just has spun around that way my entire life and I think one of the most important things I've learned is that surviving, healing, growing, all of those things are, it's a conscious, active effort. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I really appreciated that. Mm. I think when you're in the, you know, automatic, instinctual process of survival, you're not, it's so hard. It, it's just, it seems impossible to do anything more than survive. And I think we can easily look at textbook steps on what to do and feel like we're crossing off a checklist yeah. and we're getting there and we're making progress. But there's really never one list of things to do that's going to help everybody. Mm-mm. It's going to be so individualized, and it's your responsibility. I think that's the part that I, I didn't grasp, mm. that it was 
I had the power and the responsibility to heal my heart and my body and turn this into what I wanted it to be. Mm. And before, when I said, you know, I thought I had healed and I was done, I think what I did at that time in my life was I did what everybody else around me was telling me to do to heal. Hmm. What did that look like? What were people telling you to do? Well, I went to a therapist, yep. had my one-on-one sessions, yep. talked about my feelings. I picked up hobbies again. I you know, incorporated social activities into my schedule. I went to my doctor appointments. I tried to be healthier. You know, just really simple things that feel more complicated in the moment, but mm-hmm. pretty simple steps that I think the world around you would say, mm-hmm. yeah, that sounds like you're doing the right things. And I, I got that affirmation from the world too. Right. That, oh, you got a job again? You're That's great. You're doing better. Mm. Oh, you're going to therapy? That's great. That's a big step. You're doing the right thing. You know, I just got the recognition from everyone around me that those are all the right things. And, you know, I hate to say that my second ra- my second time round with it, but that's what this truly feels like is mm-hmm. the last two years for me have has been a completely different experience of healing. Mm. And I haven't done anything that anybody told me to do. I really listened to what my individual needs were every day mm. and tried to follow that and do what makes me feel good. Hmm. Um, That's so important. I think so. I think that we are taught very early to not trust our own instincts about ourselves. Um, I talk about this a lot in particular for me with food and body Mm -hmm. and how I was taught very early that I couldn't trust my own craving or hunger or fullness or any of the instincts that are natural to me. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm trying to relearn that, you know, and that's like, well, if I think about when I started to sort of divorce myself from that, I feel almost like I'm at that mental age when it comes to sort of going back and going, oh no, what do what is good for me? Mm-hmm. You know, but there, I really believe that there's this innate wisdom in us. Like, we do know what we need. Mm-hmm. We do. Um, but you have to lean into trusting that, and that feels like a risk at first, for sure. Yeah. So what does that look like differently this time? I think the actions I'm taking are just more intentional. Mm. You know, do I need to still be going to a support group two and a half years later? To the outside world, probably not. Do I get so much value mm-hmm. and feel so good after that? I can feel the difference in the weeks where I'm unable to make that group. Mm. And I just recognize that if that's how I'm still feeling, I can feel a difference just from missing out on that hour of my week, then that's a priority that I need to make. Yep. I think that's really important that um, that you're really leaning into that idea that it doesn't, it doesn't matter how the world assesses your need for this support group all these years later mm-hmm. and that you should be done now or mm-hmm. something. I don't think that there may be ever be a done, you know? No, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I, but I'm okay with that. I think 
like I mentioned in the beginning, I, I truly, I don't know if I really ever truly had an experience where my life was threatened. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like it in the moment, but I still feel like I have a second chance at life mm-hmm. for being on the other side of all of this. And, you know, my, my health issues aren't healed. Um, I actually just had to have surgery redone on Pedro because they believe that the abuse I experienced actually caused him to come undone Mm. and it hasn't been working for a while and so long story short what they found was it it just didn't make sense that it would come apart that way it had to be from something pretty traumatic Mm. Um, so that I just felt like that was another kick from the world like you're doing good but here's one more reminder and you know there are things that I I just know now I kind of laugh about it and joke about it I can't do wind chimes wind chimes and me are just not friends I have these weird similarities between a lot of the different experiences in my life you know my my ex drove a red truck the Mm. sexual assault in high school was a red vehicle Mm. it was a really windy day or really windy night we had a wind chime outside our bedroom, so a lot of my memories are the wow. background noise is this wind chime. And I have, I'm sorry to my neighbors, but I have actually gone around and taken down people's wind chimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the wind chime thief of the Quad Cities, so if any of yours are missing, I apologize. But It was me. It was me. Um, but there are just some things I know I can't handle now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mentioned boundaries I think something that has been pivotal for me is just learning the word no Mm. which sounds so simple and so basic but oh I'm pretty sure every woman in the audience is going nope not that easy yeah no it was really hard and it's no to the simplest things just nope I don't feel like going to that restaurant I want to go to this restaurant Mm. or nope I'm not going to commit to that right now I don't have the time no, I don't feel like hanging out with you. I really just want to be by myself. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be like these big grandiose gestures of rejection to things that are yeah. coming my way, but I I wasn't good at all those small no's, which led to bigger issues for me in my life. So I think just learning how to set those boundaries with myself and those close to me has been huge. Mm-hmm. for that healing process. So I have people in the audience who are surviving something. Everybody is surviving something, really. That's the truth of our realities. Uh, and I like to make space at the end of interviews to invite my guests to share their own sort of lived experience, which you've just spent an hour doing. But um, but I want to know what you want them to know about surviving, about themselves, about hope or despair or whatever you want to whatever you want to say to the survivors in the audience I feel like I could talk for another hour about that but (laughs) I would say just be kind to yourself Mm -hmm. you know treat yourself like your best friend and one of my favorite so I have a degree in psychology as well and one of my favorite studies is this study where they test the chemical reactions in your brain to a you just moving the muscles of your face into a smile Mm -hmm. and it actually makes you happier Mm. if you even fake a smile Mm. so 
sometimes on those on the worst days, if you can just fake a smile, mm-hmm. it's gonna help. Mm-hmm. So anything, I you know, pet a dog, go yeah. smell a flower, drink your favorite tea or coffee, or put on your favorite outfit. I think you and I have talked about how our society glamorizes self-care. Yeah. And I almost hate that word. It's it's not it's gotten co-opted yeah, it's to be not luxury. About, I don't have money for manicures and massages every week. If I did, man, I'd be I wouldn't be here with you. That's right. what I'd be spending my Friday <laughs> evening a little bit differently. But so I I think it it's just really take care of yourself and do what makes you feel good mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, that's what's going to give you the strength. It's going to give you the strength to leave an unhealthy relationship. It's going to give you the strength to, you know, choose a healthier activity to do or Mm -hmm. choose the right job or spend time with the right people. It's just going to give you the strength and the courage to be the best version of you. Mm -hmm. The more you can fill that cup up Mm -hmm. for yourself. And I think we as women struggle with that. Yeah across the board it doesn't matter what you're going through I don't care if you just had a paper cut today yep that can feel like the end of the world yeah and so you know I know some of your previous guests have said it you can't compare yep you can't compare pain what hurts me might not hurt you and even if it does hurt us both it's going to hurt us both differently so it's just take focus on you take care of yourself and and don't try to compare it to anything else hmm what a beautiful validating message, message to leave them with uh, that that this idea of your pain's bigger so my pain doesn't matter is just um, not true mm-hmm. because you are seen um, in your suffering and in your survival. That's awesome. Thank you so much for your time and your story and your courage and just the um, kind of light you bring to the things that you seem to do. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for creating the space. Yeah, you bet. All right, friends, that's it for our time with Jackie. And holy shit, what a story, right? I actually can sort of relate to having an experience of some serial trauma in your life. And I also know what it's like to share your story in that way, in a way that it sort of builds one traumatic story after another. I know one of the fears for survivors is that they will then only be seen through that lens. Through the lens of, oh, can you believe what happened to that poor woman? Just to be clear with you, that is not who Jackie is. And I can guarantee you that is not what Jackie wants on the other side of sharing these extremely personal details with all of us. What Jackie wants, the purpose of her desire to share her story with you, is to give you a glimpse inside of her own internal world, maybe to hopefully create some compassion for the people around you, understanding that you have no idea what other people are suffering. But most importantly, I can guarantee that Jackie wants you to find your own resilience in yourself. She, like I, knows that we are all suffering something. Generally, we are all surviving something. Jackie's story for me is a reminder of the depth and resilience of the human spirit. She really does demonstrate that idea that a survivor can almost just pull from this place that makes them unstoppable. 
She is extraordinary, and I am hopeful that you heard something for yourself in her words today. If you loved today's interview, you can subscribe to the podcast at Podbean or iTunes. While you're there, go ahead and leave us a review and rate the podcast so that other people can find us. You can also follow along with everything The Beautiful Project is doing at our website that I'll link to in the show notes. Speaking of show notes, I'll also link to resources for survivors of sexual assault, for depression resources, PTSD, domestic abuse, all of the elements that Jackie's story touches. I'll link to some resources for people who are maybe surviving those same things. Thank you for spending time with us today and lending your voice to our chorus of courage as we create a world where women belong with substance and with strength. I'll see you all soon.